Hello, everyone. Welcome to Relative Pitch, Episode 3, Rheingold. My name is Michael Brown, and I'm joined with the fabulous Lauren Green and the amazing Anthony Morris. We hope that you all loved our second episode and talking about our life during COVID-19. This week, we wanted to talk about the first chapter of Alex Ross's book, Wagnerisms. This chapter is titled Rheingold. Lauren, how about you tell us a summary of this chapter? Hey, yeah, so this chapter basically, I mean, Ryan Gold, that kind of gives it the explanation already, but it is Alex Ross kind of explaining, going through um, Wagner and the ring cycle in uh, terms of the people around him. There's a lot of talk of a niche, is it Friedrich? Friedrich Niche, um, who is one, we will talk a lot more about him a little bit later on, but it was one of, um, he was a huge, like, Wagner was his mentor through life for a certain part of it. Um, and we'll talk about what, how that ended later on. And so it, it's a lot about Wagner and Nietzsche and the ring cycle, kind of all in one. Like that's kind of the trinity of this chapter. And also talking a little bit about the Beirut Festival, um, which I call Wagner Coachella. I'll tell you why later. And so basically, uh, yeah, with it being about the ring cycle, I, we know that a lot of our musician friends may already know kind of what that is. So Michael's gonna kind of talk to us a little bit about what the ring cycle actually is. So who would have guessed it? The ring cycle is about a ring. It's about a golden ring. The gold was stolen from the Rhine River, Rhine gold, by stolen from the Rhine maidens. So overall view, it's just the opera is entitled, uh, the cycle is entitled The Ring of the Nubeling. That's how I pronounce it. It's probably wrong, but it's fine. And it's about a magical ring that is has the power to rule the world. That's the short, sweet, simple part. Um, just a little facts. It took Wagner over 30 years to write it. He wrote um, the libretto, which is a story from the end backwards. And then he wrote the music in chronological order. Um, a big thing about this whole thing is leitmotifs, which are typically attached to certain characters or moods, and it reoccurs over the entire cycle. Why do I keep saying cycle instead of opera? Well, this cycle, the ring cycle, is actually composed of four different operas. And if they were played back to back to back, it'll be about 15 to 17 and a half hours. Doesn't that sound fun? It doesn't. It's long, long. And the operas are in, in German, and I speak English. I'm very bad at translating, so I'm going to pass it off to my friend, Anthony Morris, to correctly pronounce these four operas. Okay, so um, I, let me just preface this. I was a core major, and I took addition class. I made a B in that class. So if this is a little off, Go ahead and shoot me with a bullet. It's fine. It's fine. But um, the four operas, the first one is called Das Rheingold. The second one is Die Valkyrie, which is literally the Valkyrie. Um, the third one is Siegfried. Um, and then the last one is Gute Damarung, which really just means Twilight of the Gods. So in English, you have the Rheingold, as Michael said, the gold from the Rhine River, the Valkyrie, Siegfried, which is the actual person's name, and then the last one is Twilight of the Gods. 
Yeah, so that's kind of like if, if you had no idea what Rheingold or the ring cycle was, it's a little bit of factoids about that. So let's just go ahead and jump into this. Um, there is a lot in this chapter. This is a very lengthy chapter, as it should be. You cannot summar summarize Rheingold or talk about it in just a few sentences, even if we try. Um, and so, like I said, one of the main elements of this chapter was Friedrich Nietzsche. I hope I am saying that right. If not, please tell me. And so he was a German philosopher, cultural critic, composer, poet, philologist. And so this was a very intellectual man. And he came into Wagner's life and, and he was like, Wagner was his mentor. He really looked up to him a lot. Like he believed in this man a lot. Their relationship was very interesting. It re I wouldn't say it reminded me of Shostakovich and Stalin because I was very different, but it was very much like, it was, it was weird and we, we just talked about this because um, at the end of the, their lives, especially when before Wagner passed, they weren't in good standings with each other um, for different reasons, but they had a very different viewpoint on life, like humanities, art in general. And the way they would talk about their differences is not by actually talking to each other about it, but by writing whole essays saying what they didn't like about the other person's writing art, yada, yada, yada. This is like subtweeting nowadays. If, if you are on Twitter, uh, youngins, hello, you know what that means. So instead of going on Twitter and just going, wow, some people just really don't know how to yada, 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 they would just actually write full length, almost dissertations about what they didn't like about each other's works. This is really weird. And um, I didn't, I don't understand it, but it's interesting to see how they chose to, to do things back then. Um, and Anthony, do you have anything to talk, add on with the, their toxic relationship? Yeah, like their whole relationship was very toxic, just reading this one chapter. I mean, uh, when Nietzsche first came into Wagner's life, he was young. It was really kind of, and it, even in the book, it was kind of like father, stepson or father, son type of thing going on where Nietzsche obviously looked up to Wagner, um, worshiped a lot of his things. Um, but over the course of, you know, years spent together, as any human, you'll start to find different things that you don't like about that person. I mean, whether you're in a relationship or it's just a friendship or whatever, you'll find those things. And I think over a period of time, Nietzsche really starts to see some things in Wagner that he just didn't like. I mean, and it got really toxic. I mean, the, a whole conversation could be delved into about their relationship and how the toxic mentorship can go, how a person um, knows that they're a mentor to a person, um, and they kind of take that for granted. I mean, Nietzsche became Wagner's publicist, became his um, right-hand man, um, I, even in the book, it says, Wagner told me, if it, you were literally like my my number, really three, first was Cosima, um, his wife, Wagner's wife, and then Nietzsche. Um, even uh, at one point in the book, we saw how Wagner said, I don't want anybody over my house this weekend. But he extended a whole invitation to Nietzsche to come um, that weekend. And that was the weekend that um, Wagner's son was... Um, 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 delivered. So here's a personal family thing that Wagner told the whole everybody, 
I don't want anybody over, but Nish was that one person he wanted to be there for his um, son's delivery. So it was this back and forth thing. And at the end of um, their lives, it really started to seep into, I don't know if it was hatred or just dislike where Lauren just said, they wrote essays back. The whole subtweeting thing, going back and forth, like it was powerful. And these essays, when I say essays, it's not like five paragraphs and that's it. I mean like long pages of things that they disliked about each other. Um, and then unfortunately, well, unfortunately or maybe fortunately, Wagner passed and really kind of, did a mental thing to Niche. He he really, I, I guess, took it to heart. Um, and I really believe something mentally happened to him because he started writing in very confused um, language, even uh, sent a whole letter to Cosima, which is Wagner's uh, wife, um, and said, uh, uh, to my darling wife, Cosima Wagner. So when I read that, I was like, do he think that he's Wagner? Wagner's since passed, but is this something where he regrets how the last part of his years went? And here he goes trying to, you know, redo some things. So their whole um, friendship, relationship, everything else, it was very toxic, very, very toxic. And for that to be back then, then, and now we have subtweeting and we still deal with, you know, Toxic mentorships. I tell people all the time, be careful who you call your mentor because it really can go two ways. It can be really good and that mentor is a very great one or they know that they're your mentor and they're going to use and abuse that. So from Anthony to anybody who's listening to this, be careful of who you are and be aware um, before you go out and call somebody your mentor. Okay. Um, Michael Lauren, did you have anything else for Mr. Nish or anything? Um, not in particular about just but about both of them. The, um, I think I have it written down. Like I think the fall of men like them are their egos. Like yes, this is age. Everyone's like, oh, I'm so philosophical, and I have these really big thoughts and really deep thoughts, and we already know that Wagner had a huge ego, but. I believe the the this present or the knowledge that they possess or they thought they possess, I'll say that. Um, I believe it, it starts eating at you. I can't imagine thinking about things that deep in that time period where there was like nothing. You know, we have other things to distract us now, like TV, social media, everything. But if you are constantly trapped in those type of deep thoughts you're going to start questioning everything in your life. I feel like, and that is, I feel like that, that's why they kind of turned against each other. Um, because it's like, and I don't know if there are a lot of elements in this, uh, that we'll talk about later on, but, um, I absolutely give the reasoning of the, the destruction of great minds and great figures in history to their egos into their minds. And that's like, that is the hunger to want more out of what you already know. I guess if that makes any sense, but the, the philosophical point of views. Yes, there it is. That's a word. Um, and it's funny because like in television and like on social media, like you'll have people who you'll have the character who's like, oh, I'm a sociology or psychology major. And they're the ones who are always like, 
but isn't life just like a game and like things that you're everyone everyone else is just like grown put hand in head like oh this person's talking crazy again um but instead of that it was they thought that was like the best like they would just sit in a room and talk like that i i cannot imagine um it's great in reading sometimes but it i'm not surprised that their relationship failed the way that it did um but going on, uh, there was, uh, sorry, Anthony. I just had one thing about the ego. I mean, we can talk about ego in a whole episode in its own. I mean, we have seen time after time, musician, non-musician, actor, uh, politician, where their ego gets so big, they think that they are untouchable. And it's when you get to that point in your life that that is actually the most poignant time for you to be tumbled down and be humbled, okay? Um, Wagner, Nietzsche, they, their egos was definitely a big thing. I mean, at the end of the book, we start to see how the with the Beirut Festival of how mm, the egoness, the reason we, we to this day see classical music as such a, Oh, let me button up everything and let's go to a concert. We see now where that kind of started from and the Beirut Festival really kind of did that. I'm pretty sure we're going to talk about that later. Um, but we see the ego and Wagner kind of realizing who Wagner is, that there is a the name Wagner and then the brand Wagner are two separate things now. So this is really getting to the point of Wagner as a brand, um, which to this day, people are still making brands off of their names. Just go look at Real Housewives of yada, 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 or the, the Three Sisters on E-Network, brands. That's it. This was the original, I'm branding my name to get to, you know, to a big platform. Um, so something I can't, I, when I was reading this, I was like, look, how I can relate so many things was happening now to what was happening then and where it kind of started from a little bit. Yeah, and like, I mean, since we're already on that topic, let's just talk about Beirut, um, which I uh, formally acknowledged as Wagner Coachella. And the reason I say this, it's, am I wrong? Like, I mean, it was kind of, and what Anthony was talking about with the branding, that was a huge like thing. Like that, I think that was very innovative for the time of like, Oh, I'm going to sell things with my face on it my name on it. And if you think about modern concerts, when you go to a concert, what do you, what do you expect? Oh, I'm going to buy a t-shirt with the band or the artist's name on it or mugs and cups and stickers and all that thing. So that was huge. And it's a technique that we are still using to this day, like in modern times, um, but Beirut was more, had more invention, innovations, excuse me, than that. So before this time period or pre, pre this, pre this time, music wasn't, it was kind of like the background, like you had concerts and shows and people were talking through it. Imagine you were like sitting, watching the New York Phil and the people next to you are just talking about dinner and everything, you'd be like, what, what's wrong with you? That was a that was a newly found cultural thing at this time. And um, the, the way they were able to do this, the way that Wagner had this happen is dimming the lights. 
like he actually said in place that the lights would actually be dimmed. And I think that they actually talked about it in the book how the, there was a mishap the first one where it was actually just pitch black, which is funny because you go to the theater now, that's kind of what it is besides the screen. It is absolutely like because your entire attention, you're looking at the screen or at the concert hall, same thing, all your attention is on the stage. And so this caused people to go, oh, wait, the lights are turning off. That what, what's happening, what's happening, and then you're locked in there. And then the new innovation, oh, Anthony, you got it? No, well, I just wanted to be like, honestly, I don't think I could ever really focus if the lights did not dim. Like, if I'm being honest, and I, wa I wanna hear from everybody else who's listening, could you focus if you went to go see uh, the next Avengers, I know Avengers is over, but what if you went to see that and like, the lights didn't dim, it is completely sunny and lights are in, like what, could you still focus? That's my question because I, me personally, I'd be looking over here, I'd be looking over there. Ooh, what's so-and-so doing down there? I don't think I could really focus through that. Could you focus Lauren, Michael? Could you focus through all of that? Well, I mean, honestly, no. <laughs> and I also get distracted when it's completely dark. But especially with Wagner, he had this like grandiose idea. That's his thing. It's drama and music. Not just music, not just drama. That both of them. And that's why I think he dimmed them. He was like, Y'all gonna pay attention to what is on this stage. Y'all gonna pay attention. Cause this is drama. I am giving you like midday television soap opera drama with midnight amazing music. Like, that's it. He's doing it all at one time. So I understand he dimmed the lights, but I'm over here like, I can't do anything with lights on. Mm -mm. And this makes sense because we know, like, how highly Wagner thought about this, his work. And so he re really came into the idea of, you are going to look on stage the entire time. You are going to listen to what I have to say, which that's like, absolutely what happened. And besides dimming the lights, another thing that kind of came out of this was the not clapping whenever we wanted to or not clapping after specific movements or like uh, after like someone gave an aria or some, you know, something like that. So concert etiquette is finally coming into play. Like we're actually learning how to be active, like audience listeners, respectful audience members. And this is something that as musicians, we learn as like from a young age, because like during, um, you know, we have to, if we're in band, you have to listen to your other band, the other bands of the school. So you learn, oh, if they're doing a full movement piece, like you, you are a different, like multi-movement work, then you have to wait. And that's always a thing that I, I remember it was, it was more when I was young, because now I'm surrounded by people in my family, like who they know now, they just usually know either to wait until someone else does it, or they understand, oh, it's a three movement work, they're gonna stop, move their papers, and that'll be, okay, that was the first movement, yada, yada, yada. It gets a little confusing because some movements are a taka, so they'll just go straight into it. But again, just some endings, some conclusions of pieces, you you kind of know the endings of them. So it's like that had to be the ending. Like that's just amazing. Um, so this was a new innovation that was brought to us through this festival that now we don't have people who are running like, oh, that aria was amazing. Like, let me just clap right in the middle of this and just lose half of the next scene because I'm too busy clapping. And like in jazz, it still have, but that's different because you know uh, that's that's a completely different world that I'm sure we'll talk about later on, like at different episodes. But now for classical music and uh, classical opera, all these things, it has now set a precedence of okay, you wait until a set ending. 
just actually do an applause. So my question is, that was started back then, 1876. I know now, I know some ensembles who are breaking away from that structured concert etiquette. What are some of y'all thoughts about that? Because, I mean, let's say we are playing a multi-movement work and let's say movement one is a phenomenal ending and some people feel overjoyed to clap. Now, I mean, even back then it talks about in the book, like after a movement, a person started to clap and they were hissed by Wagner to like, hush. Um, but now, what if, I mean, I know in jazz, you know, after a soloist plays, uh, clapping, but in a, in a classical setting, like either in wind band or orchestra, after a soloist plays, there's no clapping. Um, what do we think about that? I mean, literally in every other genre, if we go to pop songs, after, let's say a guitar player had like a, 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 a solo, if they, are, if they are, you know, with the vocalist or something and they had a solo, people are going to clap. In gospel music, after a soloist sings, um, clapping, or if they feel moved by the spirit, they're going to, you know, start doing something. But in classical music, it's really become kind of, you have to be quiet, you have to do this, you have to do this. And some people say that it's kind of turned a lot of people off from this genre of classical music. So what do y'all, what do y'all think about? Before, because I, I want I want to hear Michael's opinion on this, but I actually I'm reading it now, and it says at a later performance someone shouted "Bravo" during the chorus of the Flower Maidens and was hissed that someone turned out to be the composer. It was Wagner who literally no, he Wagner was the one who who said "Bravo," and he got hissed by an audience member. That was not his. his so this is kind of telling that his intention wasn't to really get to this level of like silence and like seriousness but the audience turned that way and that he himself was his step for saying an exclamation in the audience of his own work i think that's really funny that is funny and i think part of that with like bay ruth and everything was because how the house was built how like everybody was angled toward the stage the stage was very deep. You couldn't even see the orchestra. It was, they were under the stage and that's the way it all worked. I think just the whole setting of the opera house made it into something higher and more like, oh, I am rich and fancy for watching 15 hours of opera. But you know, that's, I, um, I know San Francisco Symphony with Michael Tilson Thomas, he was starting to encourage people to just let your feelings out while you hear something. And he is like regarded as like the new age Bernstein because he's just so smart. I mean, Bernstein did all those children's concerts and he would relate classical music to popular music. And that's how he got people invested in classical music. So I think with a degree we should all just like, hey, that was good, blah, blah, clap, 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 but not be like overly about it. Because we couldn't do the whole pop music clap and stuff because you would literally miss like Bartok's concerto for an orchestra. You clap after you hear like half the duets in the second movement. You ain't going to hear the rest of the part. And so like I think there can be a level of it 
like within like your personal group like you're with or maybe your person you're standing next to like oh my god isn't that flute amazing yeah and then like and keep going but like wow yeah i don't think that could ever be in classical music true and i and i think uh with the question it goes with the type of music as well so maybe not so much with let's say um a beethoven symphony no but what about um, Omar Thomas's um, Come Sunday? Or um, he has a movement um, in one of his pieces called Shout, which is literally supposed to resemble how a Pentecostal church is um, during service. So in that moment, I think it would be necessary, or not necessary, but it would be acceptable to let your feelings show and, you know, go yeah, ahead because, because that's how it's you know, in the Pentecostal church. Um, so I think with those things, and I guess the type of music, but I do totally agree with you about, um, let's not just go all the way out and start being like, yeah, let's go, let's go. But know exactly where you are. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Michael in that sense of like, or both of y'all in the sense of, if I hear someone play a flute, a flute soloist play the opening of Prelude to the Afternoon Fawn, and I just like, go crazy i'm just like what like everyone would like want me out of the theater immediately like you're gonna miss every because it's such a delicate like landscape and it's all about the colors and everything so i think i think the point of waiting until the end is because you're not allowing yourself to escape the setting that the composer wanted to put you in during it because you should in in my eye like in my head that's why I remember going to a concert one time and my breath, I think everyone's breath was just taken away. We, we, no one clapped for like the first three seconds. Like we were so lost in what we had just heard. We were like, I'm at a concert. Oh my gosh, like, let me start clapping. You know what I mean? And so like music is really, it's supposed to, it's not supposed to be, oh, like, good job. You gotta, it's like, no, it is supposed to take you somewhere. Like, I'm in a history orchestra class and we're doing a lot of assignments that are in uh, his goal for us is to look for excellency in recordings. And so in, in my, every time I write something, I'm like, the reason why I think this is the more excellent or an excellent recording is because I was transported somewhere. My instinct wasn't to, after the end of the recording, go, you know, because who am I doing that for? And the only reason we do it in those concert settings is to give respect to the orchestra. And so I think it's fine to wait until the end because one thing this music, this type of music wasn't written to have an applause at the end of every solo, every major section, you know what I mean? Like jazz solo, usually jazz solos, like, oh, they have a solo, everyone's go crazy and you're not gonna miss the next solo after where people know to clap really quickly and stop because that is a part of their culture. I'm scared that if people try to do this now, you will have kids going into the theater, people going to the theater, and like one solo will end and they'll try to clap and then you've missed half the next solo, you know, or it just kind of breaks. Because for me, when I'm in a theater and I'm listening in a movie or watching a performance, if something, if someone crinkles something, someone's phone, a baby, any of that, I am completely thrown out of the, the, of the mood. Like whatever, um, soundscape or land I put myself into completely obliterated because of said baby or phone or crinkle. I just remember, I think, I think it was us three. We went to go see an ASL performance. Uh, yes, yes. We went to go see an ASL performance and there was this lady 
Oh, bless her heart. But she really could have got some work right then and there. Because, like, and I think it was Appalachian Spring uh, Copeland's work, and we were very excited to hear it. And she has, like, uh, peppermint paper, and she's just, like, just making it, very, like, very loud. And mind you, it is so quiet. And I, if anybody's ever been to an ASL performance, you know how the hall is. So we're sitting up in, like, the balcony section, and it is dead silent. And all I hear for probably an entire minute is her messing with paper, crinkling it up. And I'll, all I remember is me, Michael, Warren. We just, like, looking at her. And it, it was big. Everyone was looking at her. And then I'll never forget, there was another time somebody was coughing, and it just kept coughing. And another person, like, down the way, got a cough drop out of their out of their own pocket and was like, hand this to that lady down there. Like, that's how, it was so funny because we were sitting behind them. So I'm watching this. I'm supposed to be listening, but this whole drama going on was probably some of the funniest stuff I've ever seen in my life. It was hilarious. Uh, but again, I think you have to know your, your the setting that you're in. Uh, the setting really, 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 Sets the, sets the mood. And also your conductor or the people who are there, they would set that mood. So like if you go to a jazz concert, like a, like if you were going to like a big jazz concert, big band jazz concert, usually they'll have a conductor there and which will turn to the audience and say clap. Or if I was conducting a group and I wanted you to clap, I would turn to you and, you know, do this to, to signal that you clap. Um, but it is very interesting, and I think in that moment, is okay. Do not go to performances and get too involved and you start wooing and everything, because then as a performer and as a conductor, I'm really going to be upset, Be and because you never know. Sometimes we are um, recording for different things. So we might be recording to send off to a contest, or we're recording to... Uh, go to like our state conference or the national conference or anything. So each performance we hold as a high regard. Um, so please, 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 this is not us telling you to feel the spirit and go clap. This is saying there is a time and a place for that. And also with that, with, you know, how the, with jazz soloists, it's usually you clap after that solo. For classical, usually what happens is like you in, they pick everyone up and say, everyone stand up. And then the conductor walks off and everyone knows to sit down They come back on, then they acknowledge the soloist. And so that is kind of a cultural thing that we, that classical musicians were like, okay, well, even though you won't get the, that applause, that praise, that respect while you're doing, like after your solo, like during the piece, you will get that afterwards. And I promise if it is a solo that you, you played it, like you played it, played it, people are gonna remember and go, absolutely. Like you deserve this, like this is for you. And so it's just like, it's about time. It's like placement. And so it's like, does it mean more because it happened right after? Or, you know, does it mean less because it happened later on? I don't think so. You know, I, I absolutely think if someone, if I did a recital and then a month later, someone randomly like sees me for the first time since then and says, I just remember like watching your recital. It was amazing. Like I truly enjoyed it. Like that's going to be just as, important and like uh nice to me like at that time that as it would have been then 
Like, I don't think that's the time, like, over time, you know, and I'm sure composers, you know, feel the same way. Like, they'll have music that's been written for years, and someone, like, they'll have students come up to them who they're working with, and they'll say, I love this piece of yours. Like, it's one of my favorites. I'm sure to them, they're like, wow, that means so much to me, regardless if it was written the day before or 10 years ago, you know what I mean? And so... I think that I, I guess it's it's very it's a very cultural thing. I think and whatever whoever the conductor that group whatever they set into place, absolutely is what you should follow when you go there. Um, but yeah, like I so this is a huge innovation that was brought to us by this festival, and we we still we have it to this day, and it's still even still being talked about now. Um, there's a lot to unpack in this in this chapter. A lot of things that have been said, quotes that I, I want to go off. Um, something that, and Michael, if you want to talk about lie motif again, um, just to give another, before I talk about what, what he mentioned in the book, what it actually is for our um, non-musical friends who are listening in. Oh, yeah. So the easiest way, so lie motif was popularized by Wagner. Um, it was a thing before Wagner, but it was popularized by Wagner because in these operas, two, three hour operas, what do we watch now? Movies. So best way to think about this, there's two examples. Jaws. Every time a shark pops up on that TV, you're going to hear, bottom, 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 like the Jaws thing, right? Or Star Wars over the cross of all the movies, which there's only really six that are important, um, you'll hear like Darth Vader's um, Marge, the Sith. Uh, you'll hear like Leia's theme. And it always pops back when either the memory of that person's important or you, the person showing up, or we should think about that character. And sometimes it's a mood. It's Don't not. Harry Potter. Don't forget Harry Potter's Hedwig thing. But Star Wars and Jaws, they came first. Yeah, so that's that's kind of what a live motif is. So it's supposed to be something that reminds you of a specific, maybe a person, a place, a thing. You know, it's kind of like that. What's funny about the live motif is it was actually one of Wagner's students who I think coined that, who brought that term um, to life. And Wagner actually didn't care for it because... Uh, he actually preferred to the, those lie motifs as melodic moments and basic motifs, but not dramatic moments. Um, so he thought it kind of took away from the music itself when you say, oh, this, this is only being played because the sword is coming out or the ring is coming out. Um, but to us, it makes a lot of sense because like Michael said, like in Star Wars, when I hear Leia sing, I'm like, where is she? Where is she? Because I know she is coming or they're talking about her. That is another big thing. It's an illusion to something that isn't there. And that is how you bring forth that those ideas is by using music. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. Um, and so a lot of, yeah, in movies, uh, the composers have started using that a lot to show, to, you know, bring this new sense of character, like characters um, in their, in, to, kind of, to bring music more to the forefront of the movie. You know, it's actually important because it's like, oh, that sound means Darth Vader's coming 
or that the Sith, yeah, all this stuff. So that was a huge, that is always a word that is associated with Wagner, even though it's funny because he actually did not like the word. He wasn't even the one who came up with it, but it became something that is associated with him. Um, so within this, uh, there was a, and I think Anthony, Anthony can talk about this a little bit, um, Mish, I think he brought around a friend of his around Wagner and you know we're always we're talking about Wagner and his music greatness but we also have to kind of remember a little bit about the non-greatness about him too the things we kind of want to brush over a little bit but not in this we actually don't want to brush over it um so there's a little bit of hypocrisy that goes on in this Anthony if you want to uh, jump in and talk about that yeah um so the first thing i want to talk about is niche um this was after really their i call it their breakup this is the the middle ground when they were um cordial with each other but they weren't like closest friends anymore um so niche was living um i think it was like on the amalfi coast um, he was living with some of his friends. One was a Jewish man. Um, and both of the Wagners, both uh, Wagner and his wife, they were very hesitant um, of him because he was a Jewish man, which we know the Wagners and being anti-Semitite and all these things, we know that. And um, we have, we see that. But then let's go back to when he started the Beirut F Festival he said it out loud that it's for everyone to be this and to, you know, all of this, but really behind all of that, he meant German people. He meant really everybody minus Jewish people. Um, there was something he wrote um, called Das Duthum in der Musik, which is basically Jewishness and music in 1850. Um, he called uh, Felix Mendelssohn and Giacomo Meyerbeer, um, which are two uh, Jewish composers, um, famous in music, especially Mendelssohn. He said that they are still imitators of tradition and or agents of capitalist greed. So here, let's go back to him being petty. Let's, let's go back to him being petty, writing an entire essay about specifically these two composers who were at this time famous for their works. Um, but here he go, subtweeting again about this, them just because they're Jewish. And throughout this, we see um, some of his nationalistic side of German proud and uh, we're German, we need to get rid of the things of that. Um, he first wrote the, um, Jewishness and music under like a pseudo name, so not his name. But he felt so strongly about that that years later he re released it under his own name to ensure that it was never forgotten or excused. So it's a difference so when he meant it. That's what, that's what I meant. He meant truly, it. <laughs> truly, he meant that. He meant that with his whole heart. He meant that because. When somebody puts something out and it's not their name, we look at it like, okay, mm-hmm. But when you put it out with your name, everything is just right there. We look at you like, oh, you really mean this right now. He means this. And we look at, we also, you know, go through that. And later he tells Liszt 
Um, he has an enormous desire to commit acts of artistic terrorism, which I'm like, okay, these sound real, real problematic. And this is part of why we're doing this book is because some of the problematic things, some people like to shun it away. Some people don't like to talk about it, but we need to talk about this. And the whole discussion at the end of the day is, are we just going to let it go and go on to the next thing? Or not. Um, and with this, though, the whole hypocrisy going on with this of like, I created a festival for everybody and everybody to come and promote music and see the great things that I'm doing and it's for everybody. But then he doesn't even want to see his ex-best friends, uh, people who he's around, because they're Jewish or talk about another composer at the same time because they're Jewish. Is this something that we we want to, you know, keep going? Like, it, it really confused me reading this. Mind you, this is a long chapter. So, but that was one thing that really kept in the back of my brain. Like, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on right now. A lot of things are going on. Do we not like them? Do you like them? I need to know. I need an answer right now. So, um, what y'all think about all of that? Yeah, um... It's funny because you have these great artists and everything, and they have some very interesting perspectives. And they're not only just like artists in their own, but they're also like, it's also about humanity and politics and everything, which makes hello sense about you know what this title is. Um, but Nietzsche actually had a very interesting quote from the book about like his, his ideas and everything. So it, it's temporary relapses into barbarism can rejuvenate an aging civilization. So it's basically like peace cannot exist without without war. We have to do so every now and then you need a little bit of like bad, you know, just some some just something that just comes out that's just super heinous or just awful that brings us to the next level of I guess tranquility. Um, and I guess in a sense, it's true. It's very interesting to think about it that way that in order to have, like, we have to, sh every now and then, something tragic has to happen. Um, and it's, if we think about <laughs> this summer, the things that were going on, events that led up to the social unrest in our country. It's, it was a tragic situation, a tragic loss, an inhumane loss that inspired all of these um, these uh, social, new social warriors were born and new allies were formed. And it was it was amazing in terms of what we saw, like, especially my generation. Like, I'm very proud of my generation for what, like, the, the situations that were brought out of the negative of the things that happened this summer socially. And... It is unfortunate that these things have to happen for us to get to this new level of whatever enlightenment, if we want to call it that. But it's true because we can get so, we'll get so used to things. We'll get so comfortable with things. Oh, that's just the way things are. Oh, he's just that way because of this, where it's just, you know, that's just their, their age group. That's just how they think and everything. It's, we're done with that. I am over that. I'm over the excuse of it just it is what it is no 
No, not when it comes to human rights. Again, say that again. It ain't is. We it, can't be saying. It's not. It is what we make it. Mm. You know, and we we're we're at the point, especially. I I will keep saying this, especially Gen Zs. Shout out to y'all, seriously, because you are actually going out there and getting stuff done. Like truly. Like it is, we're past the point of just being like, oh, it's just, we're, we're, we'll complain about it, but then get nothing done. No, we now, we're, it, it's about the action. It's not about the word, it is about the action. So just side note here, please go vote. Please go vote. Vote, <laughs> vote, please. You, you, you absolutely have the, the right to complain about your government and politics and everything, but until you put those grievances into action, what, what are you doing? What are you doing to help this situation? You know? So this is me pleading, like seriously, like I have my absentee ballot right here, ready for me to sit down, do research and fill out and send it back in. Cause that is my, that is my duty to, if I want to see this country better than it is currently, that is what I have to do. That is what we all have to do. So please go vote my, my young friends, my young colleagues. Um, so yeah, and this, you know, there have been so many initiatives by social media platforms and everything that are always like, have you voted? Have you voted? There was a huge celebrity, I don't know if you know who David Dobrik is, who just did like a, I don't know if it was, he did a meet and greet or something where, but he got a lot of fans to come out and got like thousands of like our generation people to sign up to like register to vote, you know? And so like use your plat, like I, these celebrities, I, it's amazing to see them using their platforms to encourage the youth because they usually know who's actually, who is my audience, who are my fans, younger generation people, your fans are going to be other younger generation people. So, and that is who, that is our presence in voting has been sad, truly has been sad. And I get it because I, I was young and I was like, I don't like politics. I don't like talking about politics. I don't want to vote because it just makes me sick. Nothing's going to change. Yeah, nothing will change if you have that attitude. Absolutely. Nothing Nothing is going to change if we have that attitude. I want to see it. I want to see change. I want to see difference. Um, and so, yeah, and like things are going to happen even in better societies. Things are going to happen where something bad will inspire something good. But still, that doesn't mean we have to wait <laughs> until that something bad happens to cause more good to happen. So One thing... One thing uh what we have learned from summer 2020 is that change needs to happen change needs to happen and the only way change will happen is starting with you um you are the only one that can make that change happen so please 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 this is our little psa in the middle of this podcast to go out and vote because what we're seeing from this book from right here just in the first chapter is that the more people have stayed silent, the more things have just kind of festered on like below the surface. And the thing about festering below surface, one day it's just gonna bust. And when it busts, it's not good at all. So let's change this history. Let's change what has been done in the past. Let's change it for a better future. Let's not think about ourselves, but let's think about our kids in the future. Do we want our children, our grandchildren, to be going through the same things we are going through right now? And the only way to change that is starting right now.
also, on a side note, for coming from someone who hates talking about politics, all this other stuff, like, yeah, it's not about the every four-year election either. Like, you have to vote in between because, honestly, love the president, but the president does not make laws. The Congress controls all of that. And they can even overpower a veto. So if we get the right people in Congress, not only, of course, the head of the nation, but it also matters in between every four-year election, too. And even elections for your sheriff, for your governor, for your mayor. Like, all those matter. I used to think everything didn't matter. Like, it doesn't affect me. I play trumpet. We're fine. No, just go do your duty. It's your duty. It's your right. I mean, a lot of people can't do it because they're not allowed or they're shunned from it. So just do do your part like we all have to do. Yeah, and so going off of that, there is a quote in here from Wagner himself that says, um, from one of his essays in 1849, revolution, all that exists must go on, under, all that is ends. What, first of all, duh, but I mean, second of all, like that makes sense, right? Because revolution is to completely go, okay, done. Like we, we are done with this. We are now implementing this in. So, I mean, I feel like culture, life has just gone, there have been so many different revolutions that have brought us to this point. And there are even some revolutions that we don't even realize were revolutions or are maybe currently going on that are revolutions. But it's true because in order, to, if we want to stop a certain system of practices that have been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years, something has to be snipped out. Something has to go. And unfortunately, there are people who want to hold on to these past things that we can't get to this next level of what we want to call enlightenment until some of these things are just completely, and that doesn't have to be physically, but beliefs, ideas, practices, all of these things that we're, so certain people are holding on to the past. We don't, we, just because it's how it has been done before doesn't mean it's what we have to continue to do. Just like Anthony was talking about, do we, is that it is, clapping during peace is something we want to start doing again like doing in general again and it's like we have to think about these things if we want to continue progressing it's about trying new things it's about not being scared to implement these practices we're, we're seeing that happen oh that wasn't that wasn't a great idea okay i guess we'll just go back to it you know um but the worst is to have that idea have that potential and then to not act on it is that that's that's kind of what I have to say about that. Um, so, but sorry, Anthony, you got it. Um, revolution, the big word, revolution. There have been many revolutions in the world, and small things um, that you might not think about were revolutions are revolutions. Um, civil rights movement that was a revolution because it was an uprising of the previous thought of what it, what it was like, and let's change something. Um, the Gay Revolution, one of my favorite songs, which um, I was going to perform in my, uh, my senior conducting recital, was A Mother of a Revolution by Omar Thomas, which was written um, 
about the, the gay revolutions, uh, Stonewall, 1969, everything like that. So there have been revolutions. And honestly, I think right now, we are living through a, a small revolution, a, a small time-wise of a revolution. What happened this summer definitely had some revolution aspects to it because it was a finally, let's stop what we're doing. Let's stop what has been happening in the past. I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it and things need to change. So what I did love about reading this book is how Wagner really took a lot of political things from what he believes and put them inside of, um, of his operas. So one thing was, uh, he talks about capitalism and everything like that. Um, and Das Rango, uh, Albrecht, had you know actually found so Albert is one of the characters in it and he had found um the Rheingold um but he had been held captive of it um and in the book it says he is held he is captive to his capital and takes no pleasure in it and that's basically like a capitalist stealing something because you know some people will take something and profit it on theirs, but they are not, they will never really gain anything from it because from the get-go it was stolen anyway. And so he makes that he makes that uh connection between capitalism and then and how Albert, you know, with the whole gold. And I sit there and I listen to like I listen to a little bit of it and reading this book, I'm seeing how many different worldly things have been put into his different operas from a revolution to uh, capitalism versus uh, Marxism and everything like that. Everything is in these operas of his. And I love, me personally, I love when a composer can take worldly things and put them into music. I mean, like I just said, a mother revolution with Omar Thomas. Um, that is something very personal to him. And he took that, he took that and actually wrote a song and he dedicated um, to the lost or not lost, the trans women that were the African-American trans women who were murdered um, or the previous year, I think it was 2018 or it might've been uh, 2017. Uh, there were over 50 um, killings of black trans women and so that took, that made him, that moved him to make that piece dedicated to them. Um, and I love when that happened because then when you listen to the music, you're like, this means something. And this go back to clapping and not clapping. I personally will wait to the end because you feel, you feel the difference that that is making when there's a story being told and you know that story i.e. read your program notes when you go to a classical concert because most likely it will tell you the story. And also, as a person, write program notes. Read them program notes because I spent my time on making those program notes. So please read them. Um, but I love, love, love when I'll take a piece and it, and it has some historical context or, or it's something like that because to me it just means a lot more. Um, and there's been pieces that, that want to... Uh, Pulitzer Prize, um, and which was about the um, September 11th attacks, and it was written the next year. And you feel the different things going on. You feel the, the, the anguish and, and the sadness and everything like that. So I love, love, love when composers do that and seeing how 
Wagner, which he is a romantic composer, this is probably one of the first time in history and music history that that has started to happen, where they take things from worldly aspects and put it into the music. Because before, a lot, a lot of music was written for a party, it was written for the church, or it was only written because somebody paid them to write it for another action or something like that. So in the romantic period, that is actually when things started to really influence music. And it wasn't about, I'm trying to get paid. It was more like, I need to write this down because this is how I'm feeling right now. Um, and I think that's what makes Wagner's music so, um, so appealing to the ear. Because we're always listening to like, what's going on? What was he thinking about when he wrote this? Um, which I, I like to listen. I, I, will, I will admit it, I like to listen. Real quick to go back to the whole program note stuff and waiting to clap. I think in classical music, like program notes are great. I hate reading. A lot of the society hates to read. I believe in classical music, there will be a change needs to be where the conductor will have an open conversation with the audience explaining like what they're going to hear. What is this? Like, if you can, if you can get people in on that idea, like play a main, like get your, like the children's concert used to be with, um, with uh, Bernstein. He used to play these motifs. Things like this, what's going to happen. It's going to do this. It's going to do this. And then all the while, I'm pretty sure um, the audience is engaged the whole entire time listening for those things that is coming about. So I think there will, need, there will be a change of classical music and the conductor really like building a rapport with the audience because then the audience is going to be more invested in each piece of each performance. So that, I think that is a big thing to do. Like, yes the people of musicians who want to do the research and all this are going to understand what's happening, but not regular day people who in the end, that's why we play music is to get everybody to understand and do stuff. So I think that's going to need a change in classical music. I definitely think that is, that's an idea that would be really cool. Like stopping and explaining, okay, so this movement's going to be about yada yada. So make sure you listen out to that. And I think a lot with children's concerts, they do that a lot because for children, it's like to make them engage and things like that. They're, they're, you're kind of going to want to know, make let them know what they should be listening for. Oh, make sure you listen out for the flute, who's going to be the pretty bird or the the a tuba, who's going to be the ogre. Sorry, tubist. I didn't mean to say that, but I did. Um, <laughs> but what'd you say? Say she meant it. I mean it. But you know what I mean? So it gives them something to look out for so they are more engaged with it. I think with the modern, think about your the last symphony concert you went went to, start at eight in about what, 10, 10, 15 with the intermission. Yeah, to and we, we love our conductors, don't we? We do. They can get very long winded. And so, <laughs> and so all I'm gonna say, Yes, all I'm going to say is, yeah, keep it brief, to the point, make sure that you, you know, just say it, just talk about it. And like, Rehearse what you're going to say, yes. okay? I know some conductors who will get up on there and, like, have a blink and then just start rambling. No, 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 keep it short. If you are going to say, um, 
this motif right here means the beginning of this. Have them play it. Boom. All right, next. Like, like do not make your monologue a five-minute thing. Please don't. Thank you. Yes. So with, because when, when you, when Michael, when you just talked about it, it reminded me of, I don't know why I thought I related the conductor to a preacher, like a pastor and the sense of like, oh, you know, the pastor, you have the moments where they're just talking about the scripture or whatever, you know, and talking about the, like their explanation of it. And then they have times maybe they'll tell a personal story. So that is the part where it gets like the congregation to go, oh, wow, we're learning more about our pastor, or wow, yeah, and relations. So that absolutely, I, I get that. It makes sense. It makes it more personable to the audience. They have this, they feel like they have this relationship with the conductor now. And like my, I have a home church in Augusta, True North, where afterwards the pastor will come out into the, the atrium and talk to people, just walk up and be like, to groups and be like, how are you doing today? How did you enjoy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it builds this, like, this relationship and a reputation like this is a person who we respect so much and also this is someone who actually cares and wants to engage with the audience and everything so absolutely if this is something that that starts to become a thing that'll be amazing as long as we keep make sure they're they're planned very well well structured timely and everything because we do love long explanations but we there has to be a compromise somewhere where gotta, we're, be, gotta be please I mean, and also, the more you can get the kids involved, or kids, I have kids, like my, my students, but if you can get the ensemble involved, so if you reference something in the song, have one of the performers play it, you know, so that the audience here, like, oh, I know what this is now. It really starts to get them to listen. It gets them to... Um, really focused. I did that with my sixth graders like a couple weeks ago where I said, all right, you're about to hear something and this is what it means. So put your your uh, listening ears on and be listening. And then when it came on, I was like, oh my God, Miss Morris, that's it, that's it, that's it. And I'm like, yes. But what I'm doing is getting them to start to actually listen to music. And as a conductor of public school, we also have to train our audience, which will be parents, to listen to music as well. And just by doing something short and simple as that really starts to get the entire audience ready for it. Um, so all the band directors out there, I know I'm young, but that's my little T on that, okay? And that's it. To talk about, uh, just real quick, a story. We need to make concerts more of a thing. Like, it's a holistic thing. Like, we went to Midwest this past December. Um, and the Air Force Band from Washington, D.C. had a whole introduction song when the conductor wasn't even there. And they had someone, like, speaking about them and talking about the conductor. And then he came on and just kept going. I was like, this is a whole ordeal. Not just, like, blah, 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 intermission, blah, blah, blah. No. You have theme music, and you're not even there. That's like, I was like, y'all, this man. They had uh, their whole um, narrator, too. Like, she was there like, this is the United States Air Force Band, okay? You were not mistaken at all which who concert you were at. Mind you, their concert was like 8 o'clock, so a lot of people are either sleepy, a little tipsy, or something. So they're like, where are we? But no, you knew exactly where you were. So creating that holistic thing, I like that. 
I was lit. I was awesome. I was like, y'all, this is not a concert. This is a concert. <laughs> like we we here to have fun. <laughs> yeah. It was and it was fun. It was a phenomenal concert. Phenomenal. Yeah, I mean I like that because it's it's making concerts more fun. You know, sometimes you're like, oh, I wish more people can't like came to this, but to be able to sit in a very stuffy setting for two hours without talking, you have to be trained to do. That is something that it's like, oh, that started in sixth grade. That's the reason why I can do this now. But if you want members of like the public to feel comfortable enough to walk into a symphony hall and sit there, it can't be that stuffy. It can't, it can't be that, it's very elitist. That's a word, elitist um, of classical, uh, like just concerts nowadays is it feels you have to be, you have to look a certain way and you have to know what's going on and know exactly when to clap and all these things. And um, I don't know, it just, we hold it up to this such a high degree. Then I like, I went to Europe like about two, three summers ago now and people just walked into the hall with uh, shorts and everything on. They're like, oh, this is a random, it's fine. It's a normal Friday. We're just going to hear the symphony. Like what's, what, what are you being weird about? And it's because it's a part of their culture. It's just not, it's not part of like the, uh, like high, um, like the higher ups culture. It's a part of everyone's culture because this music is supposed to be for everyone. Um, and so going back a little bit more into the book and what we were talking about, there's a quote um, that says only a denial of worldly appearances, a denial of the will to live can bring peace to the suffering individual. He who overcomes the self will change his whole nature, rise above himself and above all suffering and gladly welcome death. The little part is a little morbid. The last part is a little morbid, but it's kind of basically saying that if you stop caring so much about what's going on out here, it's when you truly find individual happiness contentment where you're not afraid that oh i'm wasting time i have to go do you know what i mean it's you get to the point in life where you have to be fine with and I, i've learned this myself and i tell this to friends all the time you have to learn how to be okay alone by yourself and like not alone like in like the world but like actually like live, like are you okay with just having a day where you just do your own thing you clean go grocery shopping you practice yada yada, yada and you don't feel like you have to be around other people all the time to make to be happy. And that's something we're all living on our own right now. Anthony lives by himself, I live by myself, Michael lives by himself. And this and this is the first time I think any of us are living like separated. And they were roommates for uh, was two, two years, yes, two years. And so it's very different. I think we've all adjusted very well to it, but it's also made us like, we have to reflect more on ourselves and our, the things that we do in life and also just learn how to fill our time and our space with things that make us happy and everything. But I think this was, and again, going back to this whole philosophical humanity, all yada yada, it's really talk, it's really getting into individualism of like just saying like, oh, you have to get over yourself. And truly, it's true. And I think there was a quote or someone, a, a person, or it was an amazing performer. I don't know if it was a cellist. I think it was a cellist. I can't remember if it was Diego Mar or not, who said that, like, you, in order to play the music at the, the level that you desire, you have to get over yourself. You have to be, you have to stop being so selfish when you play. Because it is not about you when you're playing. You're playing it for your audience. You're playing it for the composer of what 
they themselves wanted to put into that music. So for us, and I remember leaving an audition for grad school and I walked into um, my, my French practice room and went, I'm gonna point out all the wrong things that I did in this piece. How toxic is that? That's crazy. Not, you know, and of course uh, audition, that's like, it's a different sense of, oh, well, we're playing this because they know how it's supposed to sound. So if you mess up, that's like a ding, ding, ding to them. But still music overall is not supposed to be, oh, you played it wrong, it's done. Like it's, it's, it's done. It's about the expression. It's about what you're trying to convey to the people around you, the message that you are sending out. And so to get so wrapped up into ourselves of being like, oh, I hated that performance, yeah, 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 like, come on. Like, it's taking the, we're taking the fun out of it for ourselves, you know, personally. I think we can all relate to this, you know, in a, in a way. Um, it, literally, I, it's funny that we're talking about this now because I have been trying to instill in my sixth graders um, that when they make a mistake, they stop. And they're like, oh my gosh, I'm stopped. And I have been trying to get them to really, really, I said, music doesn't stop. Does not stop. If you, you know, you're playing through something and you hit the wrong note or anything like that, don't stop. Keep going. Get yourself back in line. You should know where you are. Just keep going. And that also is a thing for life. If something knocks you down, don't stop. Don't let that get you. Keep going. I'll give you a day. Take your day. Go home. Redo it. Go get you, you know, take a shower. Have a whole uh, myself day. But then tomorrow, you, you got to be back on the ground. Or back on the grind. Because you have to. Life keeps going. Life never stops. So my thing that I, I'm telling my sixth graders, and it's really just about keep clapping a rhythm, but it's about life. Never stop. Because life, time never stops. Um, and so that's for y'all. We have all had our days. We've had our days that sometimes it's like, can I keep going? The answer is yes, you can. And you will. Because ain't nobody, uh-uh, we ain't got time to be taking care of nobody. So you better get yourself up. That comes from me. Uh, look, you can call Lauren, call Michael. They no, don't don't call me. Because I'm the friend that would say, get up, let's go. Let's go outside. Let's go take a run. Let's go do something. Because life keeps going. Um, so take that. That's my little words of wisdom for everybody that's listening right now. Yeah, there, there, I mean, there's just so many different, and this is kind of what this show is about, you know, is about us relating these ideas of like musical ideas, but into life, into what is currently going on in our world, in our world, in the world and everything. And it's so fun, like finding these quotes in here and going, oh my gosh, I can completely relate that to this, or this makes complete sense in this way. There's just one quote that says, music is the one art form that rather than copying the outer shell representation, mimics the operation of the will itself. Um, whoa, what does that even mean? Like what, what it's, it's basically saying, it's not saying, oh, let me just look at this painting and then put it into music. 
because a lot of times that happens, like in, in, impression, I, mean, I just kind of describe what impressionistic music is, but not really, right? Because no, but in a sense, it's saying that music is in itself, I mean, the, the will itself, I guess this is why if this was an idea of Wagner, that is why he did not like the idea of a leitmotif. Because he was like, how dare you say that this, it, this music itself only exists for the purpose of dramatics or in that context of that which it is completely bringing music to the forefront, making it in itself like a creation of itself, which makes sense. Because I, I listen to um, movie scorings all the time, all the time. I, love, I will go, oh my gosh, I have to put that on my playlist. Like, that is amazing. And that is kind of when you're, you're finally, you're seeing the layers of what art truly is. And you're saying, oh, now I'm, I like this specific part. I'm going to take it out. I Pride and Prejudice, please go listen to that soundtrack. Oh my God, I've been blasting that like all this week is that soundtrack. And so, and I know we all have our favorite, our favorite soundtracks, but that is a huge part of uh, film for me is the music that goes along with it. And while it's like, oh yeah, when you hear, like I said earlier, whenever I hear Leia's theme, I'm immediately going to go, where is Leia? But I'll hear that. I will listen to that in itself. I don't have to be looking at her. I will listen to it like this itself is just some amazing orchestration. It is ridiculous. Um, and so I think that's kind of what that point, if you, if you guys have anything to say about that, like definitely jump in. Um, I think Wagner really saw music as a whole experience, as a whole version of music. Um, so to, to think about somebody is going to take this one little section and give it a whole name that is, has nothing to do with music. It's only for dramatic effect. I see where he can, where he kind of felt like that's a disgrace. Like it's part of my music. It is part of the whole thing. Um, but I will say, giving the name of a leitmotif, I mean, that's, I'm glad we do because now when I hear um, Harry Potter's or it's really hit with, Hedwig's theme, I'm like, oh, where something heroic just happened. Harry just got done off of one of his uh, adventures, him, Hermione, um, and everybody else, they just got done. So like that, that brings to me, or Superman. When you hear Superman's theme song, you're like, Superman somewhere, I, I don't know where he's at. When you, okay, Michael. Um, when you hear Batman's theme song, or when you hear the Jaws theme song, you know, oh my God, there's a there's a shark somewhere. Don't know it's swimming around the water, but we know it's there. So I don't necessarily think it's it's for dramatic effect. I think it is still for music. I think it's emphasizing something, um, but it's still a part of that soundtrack. Um, my my thing for everybody listening is to go listen to the movie soundtracks. Go take a listen to Harry Potter's um, soundtrack and listen to all the songs. Sometimes I like to just listen to the Christmas music from Harry Potter. It just puts me in a, a like a such a good mood. Um, but go listen to the full Jaws soundtrack. Go listen to um, uh, Star Wars and everybody. Also, a lot of the things that we just said is by like one person, John Williams, because he is, he's known for that. He's known for the big uh, uh, film scores, but there's other people doing it. Avengers uh, is not by John Williams, but go listen to that. 
you would be amazingly surprised. One of my favorite songs is actually from Saving Private Ryan, and it's called Hymn to the Fallen. And when you listen to the song, it the way it affects you is like, whoa. Um, also, there's the theme song from Schindler's List. So sad. I will never forget, I was in 10th grade, and I was actually in my AP World History class. Um, and she and my teacher, she was playing it. And I was like, what is this? Like, oh my God. Like, And she was like, this is from Schindler's List. I was like, this was made for a movie? Like, that sounded like a song that was just made for a classical setting. I would have never thought that was like from a movie. So some of the greatest music is movie scores that have light motifs, that have motifs to really engage you there. Um, so come on, give film scores their proper due. I think another reason why he didn't like the light motif whole thing or why he didn't do this or that is because he is all about the full experience. Like, that's why he didn't do, like, symphonic works. Or maybe he did, but they weren't as popular. Is I believe he was like, everything needs the full experience. Like, visual, audio, auditory, whatever it's called. Like, everything has a certain place. And the leitmotifs, as we call them now, they were placed there on purpose. Not as a leitmotif, but in his musical idea, in his brain. He was like, this has to be there. This completes the entire like thing and that's why like when people watch movies we get stuck just watching movies and all the musicians listen to the score and some of the non-musicians they listen to the score too um while it's happening but a lot of people subconsciously the way a lot of our music popular music that we listen to now we just focus on one thing we don't focus on the entire picture but i'm pretty sure if you go back and watch movies like saving private ryan all of the Lord of the Rings, a.k.a. Modern Rain Cycle, um, like Star Wars, Harry Potter, all these, if you watch them and listen to the entire thing, the movie will entirely change. And it subconsciously changes you as you watch it because music will change. Like, it will go from happy during the Christmas thing to, uh, yeah, Voldemort just came back. Be scared. So that's, like, my thing is why Wagner like didn't really like the way in the light motifs is the only thing that can make sense in my head was he's like because it's the entire picture and that's what he's always focused on and i think that kind of brings us back to the the just the fact that wagner was just a genius when it came to writing these full dramatic works these cycles these operas and how people say there's there's nothing else that can match works like the ring cycle because of that level and um there there's a quote or i think niche said he understood when musicians would say i hate wagner but i can't stand any other music and i was like yeah yep and what they mean by i hate wagner is they hate his beliefs uh that um were rooted in hatred for other people for reasons that they could not change the, the, the Nazi ideas, even though that wasn't necessarily a thing then. Um, but they, they knew, I think in that they were saying they knew how to separate the man from the art. And they were saying, I don't care for him, but 
this is all I can listen to because this is the only thing that I can relate to on the human level and I guess intellectual wise and everything, anything else, they were like, no, it's just, it's not, it doesn't bring it to that point again. So, you know, with this, uh, oh, Anthony, do you have anything? Oh, no, 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 keep going, keep going. With, um, with, with this, it kind of just brings us back to the perspective of, and where I'm sure later on there are going to be even more talks of like the, the, just things that we don't really like talking about with him, but it's gonna, it's a part of it. It is a part of it. So we're gonna talk about it. And so, but it makes us remember though, also the fact that there's a reason why we are still talking about him to this day. People during his time said, oh, he's gonna be forgotten about, or his music is gonna be looked at as like, it's gonna be disrespected and just like shamed because of his views. And it's not, not by everyone, not by a majority, because obviously if it was a majority thing, we wouldn't be still performing it. It wouldn't be still on access, accessible online. Performances wouldn't still be happening of it. So it, it, it's very much talking, like you have to, for the sake of art, there's some compromise. There is some compromise. And for the people who are listening, um, this topic is very problematic as we said in episode one the because uh, see i ain't even got words but it it is something that um i will say we need to talk about because i do know some people who have completely written out wagner like i would never uh uh listen to him i'll never play him i'll never do this like no like i um there there's a, a a person who i know who never gonna do Wagner. Um, and I completely understand. Um, I, if it was modern music, I'll completely write them off too. But I don't know, there's something about this that is just like, uh, something keeps pulling me back and it goes right to the quote that Lauren said of, hate the person, but something beautiful about the music keeps going. Um, and I think that's our, our, big topic for this whole book. Um, so I think while we continue to read, we're gonna try to answer that question of can we separate the artist from the art? Um, that'll be our big question. Um, we'll love to hear what you have to think. So please drop a comment. Uh, go ahead and comment on our Facebook, on our Instagram, on our Twitter, YouTube. Oh, also, we are officially on Apple Music. So go ahead and um, go follow us over there. Store, you will find the episodes on there. Yes. So please, relative pitch, Apple, go do there. Go Spotify. Go to YouTube. Go like us, subscribe everywhere we're on. So please, please, please. Uh, find us. Everything will be linked down below or either um, on our Facebook page. So please, please, please give us a great thing there. Also, just wanted to mention, of course, th this is a very thick book and there are a lot of pages to this. We're not going to be able to unpack everything of each chapter in an hour and 15 or a half minute or yeah, a podcast. This is something that if you truly want to know everything that is within this, go buy it. It is on Amazon. It is it's hardcover. We love to see it. it's very it's uh it's, it's a thumbnail. Stay tuned. 
but seriously, like we are, we are pulling certain things out to talk so that we have talking points, but there's a lot of amazing things within this. Please, if you really want to know about more specific things in this, we really encourage you to buy it. Please. And I encourage everybody, you can see in our first three episodes now, we're going to do Wagner, a topic of music slash life, and the next chapter. So next week, we have a chapter of music. If you ever want us to talk about a certain thing in music, if you already bought the book or plan to buy the book and you're reading like say chapter five and we're like maybe a week out or it's this week of and it's before we record, please ask us the questions if you want us to go over certain topics because we would love to hear any feedback and what you want us to top, talk about. Someone could say, I want y'all to talk about coffee. Okay, I love coffee. Please. I mean we no, love interacting with everybody. So tell us uh, for the weeks that it's like open and we're not talking about the book, Let it can be about classical music, it can be about popular music, it can be about movies. Who knows? But, you know, we'll love to hear what you have to say. We, lo we love that. We love, love, love that. Yes. Um, so... I think we're going to say goodbye. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to say goodbye. Again, thank you so much um, for tuning in to all of us. Uh, this is Relative Pitch. Um, you can follow all of us on our socials. Everything will be linked below. So thank you, everybody, and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.